0: On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dan Charnas. Dan is the author of the definitive history of the hip-hop business, The Big Payback. He is also the author of Work Clean, a book that applies chef's techniques to almost any life situation. The co-creator and executive producer of the VH1 movie and time series, The Breaks. He lives in Manhattan and is an associate professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at the NYU Tisch School of the Arts. We're going to be really spending a lot of time today on his latest book, which comes out, I believe, next week, or at least next week of when we're recording, Time, The Life and Afterlife of the Hip-Hop Producer Who Reinvented Rhythm. So welcome to The Deep Dive. How are you, man? Thank you.
1: Happy to dive.
0: Got my, my swimsuit on. We're good. Oh, brother, this is, this is going to be a good one. I was... So excited to have this conversation because I'm an incredible fan of Dilla and everything that he's done and produced on a personal level in the micro. The person, his music is of incredible interest to me. And on a macro level, hip hop is the music that I always refer to when I talk to people about music is the music that is like my music in the sense that I came of age and you know, I was born in the 70s and came of age of hip hop being my music. It was distinctly different from the music of my parents and even distinctly different from the music of my older sister. I have a sister five years older than myself and she missed the whole hip hop thing in a, in a very weird way. It's never really been her thing. But for me, I remember the first time hearing like Planet Rock changed my life. You know, like literally, I remember the first moment hearing that song, even even more than Rapper's Delight. Planet Rock changed everything for me. So when I get a chance to talk about hip hop and its seminal figures with people who care about it and and love the music, it's always a a special moment to me. So after that long preamble, I want to, before we really start to dig into the book, I want to talk about what it was about. Zilla and his work and and his impact that made you want to focus on him in the way in which you did through this book?
1: Well, first of all, I started as a fan, just like everybody else. I mean, except the fact that I was actually in, in the business, you know, at the time in the music business. But, you know, among the folks in sort of the hip hop side of the business, JD was extremely loved, well thought of. And it wasn't until after I worked with him briefly and then sort of tr- made my own transition out of the business back into writing that I be- it just began to dawn on me over time that this guy wasn't just a good producer, a great producer like Premier or Marley or Timberland or whoever, right? that he was Coltrane. like that it was it was a whole other level of historicity and importance but I don't think I would have written the book that I wrote. Had I not almost a decade after my first trip to Detroit to work with JD met my wife, her family is from Detroit. And so I started spending a lot of time in Detroit. And the book is really not just a biography of Detroit, as you now know, sorry, not just a biography of JD, as you know, but it's a biography of Detroit. It's a biography of rhythm. So I think, the ambition of the book is very much tied into the fact that I became that I fell in love with Detroit, that in addition to falling in love with my wife <laughs> now it's 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 interesting because one of
0: my one of my really close friends is is from Detroit, and you know, I've known this dude since I was seventeen years old. I was, right. we got on Howard's campus together as freshmen, lived in the same dorm, we're now chapter brothers. And just a, we have a bunch of relationships, and as I was reading the book, it's like I texted him and I was like, "Dude, I got to get you a copy of this joint because Detroit is like a supporting character, yes, to the book." And you know, I, I have notes about Detroit later, like about it as a backdrop. But since you brought it up, I'm going to kind of skip ahead and and use this to kind of talk a little bit about the role that Detroit plays. Both again, that macro micro, like in JD's life, his formative years, but also the unique position it played in hip hop history and then in music history, you know, which you really did a great job of weaving that all together. So give us a sense of that Detroitness and mm. why
1: that was so central to these conversations. Mm, that's a really good question. Well, you know, Detroit functions on a number of different levels in this book. First, It functions as a plot, right? We talk about plot in a book, but literally plot, right? A piece of land. And I use the grid of Detroit, the evolution of the grid to teach music theory to people who might not know music, right? So the book has to prep you for understanding Dilla's accomplishments. And in order to understand Dilla's accomplishments, which is very simply put, he collided The two primary time feels in music, straight time where every beat is even and swing time where every beat is uneven. Dilla collided those on his drum machine, really made an aesthetic out of it and a new time feel out of it that people all over the music world now use, right? That's the the central innovation from which the book derives its title. But if you don't know any of that stuff, how do you teach it? And how do I do that while I give you a little bit of family history and cultural history? so it just presented itself detroit presented itself that way right oh the grid of detroit is this conflicted polyrhythm let me try to teach it while i introduce you to detroit then there's also the colonial aspect of detroit right the the idea that you know black folks are are fleeing jim crow they're coming to this place in the north that's supposedly safe but yet they're restricted to certain places on this map and which form the matrix right the word matrix derives from it means mother it's the mother the matrix of this singular culture from which we get motown and a lot of jazz and and funk and you know later on techno right this matrix is then wiped off the map to build freeways so everything that detroiters especially black detroiters encountered has a lot to do with this place and this map and this geography. But then there's also certain mindset to Detroit too, right? The Detroit's encounter with the machine that Detroiters had to make peace with and work on machine time in many ways before a lot of other places or in a bigger way. And so that becomes the theme in the book because James is using a machine to make music. And yet he's doing it in a way where he's as... Arthur Jafa says, misusing the equipment, right? Misusing the machine. And that is a very Detroit thing. And I was talking to R.J. Smith last night, a great author who wrote a great book on James Brown called The One. And R.J. Smith is from Detroit, and I guess he read part of the book, and he said, I'm so happy that you portrayed that period of time in 1970s Detroit when Coleman Young became the first black mayor as a time of optimism, because so few people get that. That meant a lot to me, because... Detroit even though there's all of this sort of decay porn about it, you know, there is this also this incredible pride. Yeah. So that's that's a long-winded answer to your question.
0: No, I mean, on this show dude, there's no such thing as long-winded answers or questions. <laughs> so, uh, I almost
1: spit my coffee out right there. There you go.
0: <laughs> so listeners listeners know I I start a question in one place and end up in a completely other place. So I I invite guests to to do the same, you know, cuz that's how we really sort of meandered through some of this stuff. And, you know, on the Detroit side of things, even as as you were relaying that, you know, that idea of erasure like popped up in my head because you do see the effect of gentrification, that you do see the effect of neglect in the city. But Detroit has always had this way of playing with its past as well as its future. And you kind of talk about that through the music that you had this incredible birthplace of of Motown, which is a global phenomenon in many ways. It is like what I call the shorthand for people coming together. If you ever wanna see a movie where black and white people come together, it's always to a Motown backdrop right? Like hilarious. you just see some hands building a barn or like cooking some food. And then it's like, you know,
1: <laughs> that's hilarious. The temptations are playing, right?
0: Like, you know, it's the shorthand for unity, the Motown sound, right.
1: right? Sound of young America.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then you have the Afro futurism
1: right. of, of Detroit,
0: yes. right? And all of that melting coming together and the push and pull of that. And now you have JD coming from all of this. Yep. You know, like, how do you put all that together toward the music that this man eventually is going to be making? Like you said, that point about Detroit and the machine. Right. It is it's so prescient to me.
1: Uh, well, in terms of putting it together, you know, a lot of it just sort of presented itself, if you know what I mean. Like, if you just stay in Detroit, and you watch it, and you love it, you begin to understand why things are the way they are and why people do what they do and why history was shaped the way it was shaped. I love the Afrofuturistic element of it too, because my uh, acquaintance, uh, Neil Drumming, did a whole piece on this American life, I believe, on Afrofuturism. And people told him, if you're gonna do a podcast, if you're gonna do, sorry, a radio, you know program on Afrofuturism, you've got to go to Detroit. You've got to go to Detroit. And so he goes for the first time. And this episode is him just sort of meeting people in Detroit, trying to find the future. But you know, there is a certain time travelness to the aesthetic of Afrofuturism, right? I think I say it in the book. It's a place where the past, the present, and the future all happen at the same time, like an Octavia Butler story, right? That's what I think of when I when I think of it. And then James J.D., J. Dilla is being born in this grid, you know, that is shaped by all of these forces into his parents' music history, into a city and a culture that embraces new things. It has a fetish almost for the future. And then what does he choose? He doesn't choose techno, which is completely future-facing, right? Bleep, bloop, bleep. Like, let's just get with the robots, right? Yeah. And maybe that's unfair to say it's completely future-facing, but you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Right? In a musical sense, we're just going into the machine. That's it. What does he choose? He chooses the New York version of electronic music, which is this electronic music that samples the past. And that's what he's going to do. And he's going to collide all this stuff with a certain feeling that is so idiosyncratic to him yet so deliberate and programmed. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, that's to me like the Afrofuturism thing. He he represents that, like he represents past, present, and future all at the same time. And look at us now. This is, it's 16 years after his passing and we're still talking about JD. Incredible. Like he's here, like he's still here. And,
0: you know, there's, there's a lot of deep scholarship in the book, which I, I really appreciate and The reason why I want to point that out is because, and maybe this is like a little bit of my personal kind of feeling about it as someone like, you know, I've already talked a little bit about hip hop and my passion for hip hop, but I have an incredible passion for music in general. And one of the things I've always noticed and talked about with friends is that hip hop for all of its cultural influence, to me, the most significant cultural force of our time you know hip hop is everywhere it very rarely gets the treatment that i think it deserves which is what you gave jd in this book wow which is to talk about the work not through the lens of just the music itself but of the artistry the the people the times the incredible collaboration that goes on to make this music and were you aware of doing that, or that there was a gap in that? Like I use the Beatles as an example. And I love the Beatles, so there's not a, <laughs> a knock on the on the Beatles. But I, I was talking to a friend even just last week, and I was saying I could go to like a bookstore or a magazine store and I could look at the cover of. Like Mojo and Guitar World. Right. And you would think that the Beatles just released a record, right? Or like Deep Purple just came out with something. Like right. the 60s and 70s glorification of rock is very prescient and available mm-hmm. in every way that we think about it. Right. Even if you say, like, oh, I want to be, a, I want to be a rock star, right? That's just a shorthand for being successful even in business. Right. Right. And for All of hip hop's amazing contributions to the world, it very rarely gets elevated to that kind of stature. And you did that in this book. And so I'm curious if any of that was in your mind at the time, or was this just how you wanted to go at
1: talking about JD and his contributions? It's always in my mind because even from the time I was in high school, I really understood that... Jim Crow was alive and well in our culture industry. I grew up a few miles north of where you were at Howard University, listening to WHUR, right? As a kid and understanding that all the songs that I loved on HUR, they weren't playing on PGC, right? There was this divergence between the pop playlists and the playlists on Black-oriented and owned stations. And yet everything was based In some level on music of black artists. So, I mean, that's what I made my college career. I ended up doing a a thesis on segregation in the music business. So I'm always oriented now. Of course, now I'm a professor. This is the way that I teach. I I understand that we accord a kind of a depth to, quote unquote, mainstream artists that we don't necessarily like Is there a good book on Stevie Wonder? Is there? I don't know. <laughs> like the person who revolutionized harmony in pop music, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I mean, it just as I say the words, I'm like, that can't be, that can't be, right? And I'm sure there is a book somewhere, but has there been a book of the stature of, like you said, Ian, what's his face, who did uh, you know, Revolution in the Head for the Beatles, an explication of every single song? Yeah. Right books tracking every day of their careers together, cultural interpretations. What do the Beatles mean for feminism? What do the Beatles mean for counterculture? Yeah, hip hop deserves that. And I actually think hip hop in many ways got it better, got this treatment better than a lot of RB did because hip hop was always this sort of independently, it had independent institutions. So Jeff Chang's, you know, incredible, you know, in terms of, looking at hip hop culture and i have to mention for r&b like nelson george
0: oh yeah he's been a pioneer uh,
1: yeah, in that. yeah yeah and blues so anyway what i all this to lead back to your question is no we don't get a lot of biographies about our artists in hip hop that are seriously about the music we get a little bit of the cultural milieu i do feel like i think actually for me that my pet peeve about music journalism is that it's way too focused on personality and secondarily cultural context, you know, but we've lost the ability to talk about the mechanics of the actual music. And for me, that was the thing. How can I explain to both people who don't know about sampled art and people who do how this stuff works? That's what I really, really wanted to do. I can do the cultural stuff in my sleep, Yeah, <laughs> you know, Rachel Gonza, she writes beautifully in terms of cultural context for somebody like Kendrick Lamar. But I think I said somewhere in the book, he wrote a whole album, Pimp a Butterfly, about being conflicted, a man conflicted, but very I hadn't seen anybody observe that his rhythmic motif was conflict as well. Yeah. Because he drew on on Dilla Time, he drew on that dilla feel for like at least six of those tracks. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like yeah. not just the personalities, not just the the cultural context, but the mechanics of the music as well is important to me. And I think it's,
0: it's really important. And I want to emphasize that point because, you know, in my notes, I jotted down here how when you go into detail about, you know, JD making this music, there is a calculation to it, you know, because there is technical expertise at using this equipment in ways at times that people hadn't done before. There's deep feeling in that mm-hmm. picking the right tracks, understanding the moments at which you have to change the music and the time. It's an entire intelligence that is that is being born in this moment. And what I really appreciated is that you highlighted it as intelligence and craft and not as something that is supernatural. And I and I feel often when discussing black artists Ooh. they're their work and their contribution is deemed as some supernatural magical talent that just happens, right? It's devoid of work and scholarship and study and technique. And you combine them in this wrapping of intelligence in not just JD's work, but when you compared it to how James Brown changed things and then Prince changed things and, you know, we can go on and on. So, Talk me through that choice because it seemed very deliberate to me. Maybe it was supernatural. (laughs) No,
1: it was super deliberate. Um, But I'm also, I I care for the balance, right, of the, what I call the love movement versus the science of Dilla. And I think I say in the beginning of the book and the intro when we talk about Dilla, we portray him as this sort of musical mystic. Our language is about love. When I teach my Dilla class and my students come in and I, why did you take this class? And the word that comes most up most often is just love. Him. Just like, and he does. He's a very evocative composer and for a number of different reasons. And I think the evocativeness do, comes not just from the rhythm, but what he does with harmony and what he does with texture and what he does with melody. He's a musician there are reasons for those things. There are mechanics behind those things. And while I understand that there is a, we can also do the opposite and, and really fetish science and fetish the mechanics. And I, I don't want to go too, too far in that direction. There is a real lack of the scientific part of Dilla, even among the musician, the group of musicians who worked with him and loved him. There's just like, oh man, he's just he's just great. He's just a genius. He's just like I get it. And where that came, I guess the anger for me, because all projects like this, if you're gonna spend four years on a project, there's got to be a little bit of like, yo, we got we got to do something. You know, that's the gen. I mean, that was the same way with the big payback, right? That was the same way with my book about chefs and you know organization. We're clean. I got to do something about this. So what did it for me was. Everybody talking about what Dilla did as if he was just like had these loose rhythms and didn't use the timing functions of his drum machine and just played freehand, which is just like saying, oh, Jay Dilla is just a drummer with good reflexes. And that is not. I, I did an exercise in my Dilla class where I asked my students to come up to the drum machine, turn off quantization, which is the timing correct function, and program a beat. And It just, just sounds sloppy, but it doesn't sound like a Dilla beat. Plenty of people didn't use quantize, you didn't quantize before Dilla came along. No, quantization was just one of three major techniques he used. But the, but the larger thing is what these techniques wrought, which is a change in rhythm. And here is how that change happened. That's the point of the book. That's what I'm trying to get across. And listen, that will probably be debated. I'm not a musicologist. I break it down to a very simple explanation. But I welcome the debate because JD, Jay Dilla has been a footnote in these things for too long. And so the part of me that was like, yo, we got to do something is about that. Like uh, I, Dilla needs to be injected into this dis- discussion in a major way. And, you know, as I was reading,
0: like, you know, I started reading the book and then I had to get my, my phone at the same time because as you were mentioning tracks and moments, I wanted to listen to the tracks. Well, now as I have you, a
1: listening guide up on the DillaTimeBook.com okay. website. So every all three hundred and something tracks that I mentioned are there in the listening oh, guide. Oh man, Sorry. you shouldn't <laughs> have told me that,
0: dude. I was on <laughs> I was on Spotify like looking up tracks and
1: oh yeah. And, and you and you won't find them there either. Like yeah, uh, yeah. YouTube has all the all the good stuff.
0: Yeah, I was I was finding like a lot and I was listening to them as I was reading particular chapters. And you know, I want to go into that that radical shift that you talk about, like sure. the the how and why he he did the sort of syncopation and the changes that he did. Because he, again, you did this really brilliant thing, which you tied that into the differences in European music and the way it's timed and African music, what we lost in the middle passage, what we gained going into the future. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of use jd to kind of talk about how why these shifts are are so sonically momentous sure right because even those of us who might not know it all because like you said not everybody listening is going to be a musicologist but you can feel it
1: yes or not right because i I also want to say something else like not everybody feels these differences I remember, this is a a tale from, you know, when I was producing a TV show for VH1 called The Breaks. And we shot a live scene where uh, the actor Mac Wilds and Antoine Harris are performing as a duo, DJ MC duo. And they're performing before the camera live with the track playing in the background. And of course, you know, The camera is not recording sound. The sound is sort of separate. So you have audio track. And then you have all of these different cameras that have to be synced up back up with the audio. And that's what the union guys do when they get into the edit suite. They take the beginning of the waveform and they line it up with the beginning of the clapper. And that's it. And we listen down. And it's all wrong. It's all wrong. Like the vocals, because they recorded their vocals live over the backing track the vocals are it sounds horrible right it doesn't sound like it sounded in you know when we were there what happened what happened was literally the grid of the video editing system which is either 24 or 30 frames per second is not sensitive enough it's not granular enough to actually accommodate the actual timing of those vocals in other words they needed to be shifted forward a few like uh, like microseconds and i heard it but my partner co-creator Steve man did not hear it oh sounds fine like no 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 and of course you know fonte coleman of little brother and foreign exchange was my <laughs> my partner in a lot of this stuff in the breaks he heard it right so you have to have an attuned nervous system as arthur japheth says James had a very attuned nervous system, and it's obviously that you do too, but you know, Roger Lynn, the guy who invented this machine, who created this ability for James to do this, he listens to Dilla Tracks, oh yeah, I guess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like so there they are small things. And we are all in some way like rhythmic princesses in the P. You know, yeah. we feel this thing. And there are some people who may not, right? But those are obviously not the people who always buy books about musicians and you know what they do. So going back to what you were saying before, um, yeah, our musical and rhythmic expectations are set by our geography, where we're from, and also what culture we come from. And that has a lot to do with geography as well. So the in the European music, mostly beats are counted evenly. 1 2 3 4 1 2 3 4 dot 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 in africa there was polyrhythm where you had sort of two beats of different denominations going at the same time which almost seems like cross purposes to each other but they're not so i have you know one two one two, and then i'll have another beat of one two three one two three. so there's 3 in the space of 2 right And then you put them together and it sounds like, right, it's two pulses, one of two, one of three going at the same time. That is what, at least in North America, was lost after the Middle Passage. How polyrhythm, the the double pulses that were very common in African culture, started to come out is in syncopation, um, notes appearing. Where a polyrhythm might put them, but feels unexpected in a sort of even pulse of two or four, and then this idea of swing, which is this uneven beats, right, da 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 instead of da 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 da. And what I what I do for my students, in the book, I say, listen, if you want to hear the difference between straight and swung, listen to Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. There's a moment where it switches from opera to rock. Which is also you're switching from Europe to America and you're switching from the European sense of time to the African American sense of time. And there are many gradations. You can go from it's like a continuum, straight to swamp. And so there are things that are kind of lopsided and there are things that are really lopsided. But JD is not on that spectrum. And there are some people on the interwebs who have said that, you know, called it swing or whatever. That's not what it is. What J.D. did was he took multiple pulses of straight and swung, different gradations of swung and straight, and collided them in ways where those minute shifts don't feel like they make sense with each other. So we end up with this sort of limping, uh, drunken time feel. And again, some people might not experience it like that at all. It took me a while, dude. Like, I went to Detroit in 99, and I had been sitting with that beat tape which is now called Another Batch, very famous Mm -hmm. beat tape from J D, from which Chino XL and I got two beats. It wasn't until like six months later, I'm sitting in my car listening to mixes, right? And I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on with that? That sounds off. What's he doing? Why is he doing that? And that's when I took it back to my own digital audio workstation and lined up where the hits were and discovered the mechanics of it like wow and then you start seeing those mechanics and that sound show up in the music of other artists a lot of them coming out of Philly in the year 2000-2001 and that began this journey for this time feel which is now so common in our popular music and in jazz and so and what does it mean I mean I know how he does it but the why of it J.D never really answered publicly but privately he said oh it's just how i move my head right his brother john says it's how we move our bodies it's a physics of movement and that has everything to do with culture um attitude being in something but trying to subvert that something Mm -hmm. absolutely uh and it resonates Right, it resonates with a group of folks. That groove, it's a feeling of a freedom, subversion, and duality. And you know, I'm I'm glad you
0: mentioned how you felt like listening to these beats and kind of coming to this moment where your thought is something is off. And I kept writing that phrase down because I kind of was reasoning that to like a bigger. Sense of how we see change and shifts just in music and in culture, where that something it off something is off sentiment is often like the birthing of something mm-hmm. right like that that feeling we have of like not quite getting it is like I, I think of times I've listened to music even from artists that I've really loved, where they've they've gone in a different direction, and I was like, i mm, um. You know, I, I struggle with it for a moment and it takes me a while to kind of catch up to where they might have gone, you know. So I want to maybe confront how we think about how things are off and, right. and, how, and how we measure that and make sense of the world by the way we, we think through that something is off notation. Like how, how do you wrestle
1: with that? Well, that's one of the themes of the book there are some people who heard JD beats for the first time and felt like, Ooh, what's with this? And some people were immediately captivated by it. And some people were sort of, you know, didn't know what to make of it. Uh, and it happens even now. I remember a dear colleague of mine who has more Grammy awards than anybody. I, I personally know, you know playing him a JD beat for the first time. He said, Oh, that's wrong. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and he said it with a smile on his face. But you know, my colleague Bob Power—I think I tell this story in the in the book when he's working with tribes. Like, what's what? You know, get this stuff I'm on beat, man. Or James Spaulding going up to Robert Glasper at the club, right at the jazz club. I'm like, hey, man, you gotta, you guys weren't on the one. You gotta get on it. Yeah, it all has to do with our expectations. You know, who we are, where we're from, and with whom we dwell. That will tell us, you know, our sense of onness and and offness. And that doesn't just go for rhythm, it goes for everything. You know, this is what we're dealing with in this country right now. People not really understanding and not really being able to deal with a different vision of what their country is, you know, than what it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. And not knowing those, those histories of what this is all been about, right? Like yeah. like you said Detroit has this this kind of current history of like decay porn, you know, yeah. to use to use your language when you know there's such a richness to the history, it continues to to be a a place of innovation and and growth despite the prevailing stories and to what extent there is decay there, the reasons why there is decay, right? Like it didn't just come out of moral failing,
1: it came out of like a lot of planning. <laughs> you mm. there's, know? <laughs> this, uh, there's this mural that I love, small mural. It's on Gratiot, like just before you get to Eastern Market. And it's just a, a dude, and there's this little talk box, you know, little cartoon box where he says, Detroit never left. And what that's an answer to is this whole idea of Detroit's back, right? Detroit never left. Yeah. People living and making a home in this place for years. And by the way, that's just a completely both white supremacist and anti urban sentiment that we get here in New York as well. I mean, yeah, you know, absolutely. We, my wife and I talk about it all the time when we go out to visit, I don't know, other places, you know, that are not in New England or whatever. And people say, oh, New York, I could never live there. Like, yeah, you we know, live here. We live <laughs> here this is our neighborhood we have friends we take walks we go to the store we know each other right this is our home a city is a home to its people as robert carrow said and detroit is a home to its people
0: yeah it's so it's so true as a as a native new yorker it amazes me how I can I can mention I'm from New York. I'm usually, for me, I'll say I'm from Brooklyn. I like to be really specific about that. Of course and, you and, do.
1: And, of course you do.
0: <laughs> Brooklyn. <laughs> and folks who like they love to volunteer as to like you said like oh my god I could never live there. I'm like motherfucker I didn't talks ask you that. that
1: Wait, but same as what I'm saying. <laughs> who talks that way about somebody's home? Yeah. <laughs> right. You only hear it like. If somebody said, "Oh, I live in, um, I live in the Grand Teton Mountains," nobody says, "Oh, I could never live there." Yeah. If we say, "Oh, that's wow, that's beautiful," right? Yeah. I
0: might ask you, like, how, right? Like, how do you move around? Because I'm like, there's no subway there, right? Like, so how do you go from like one place to another? But I'm just not like, ugh, you know, like there's such a dismissiveness yep. that just pisses me off. I'm yeah. like, good, I'm thoroughly pleased that you can't live in New York you know there's too many of y'all that they shouldn't be here already fucking it up for the rest
1: exactly of exactly so yeah so for detroit i think there's there is also this sense of pride it's a it's a city where people live detroit never left it's not back yeah. it never left absolutely absolutely
0: i want to i want to get a couple more quick things in um, before we move to the the final two segments of the show because there's there's so much history of a moment that i just loved In music, that like mid 90s through mid 2000s (laughs) was my sweet spot, right? Like, I was out of school, I was making money for the first time, I was shark barring it up.
1: No, like, wow, all this bringing back memories there,
0: bringing back memories, dude. I was in Soul Cafe, it was New York Undercover, it was. Nels, it was all of that,
1: right? Your your, and, your whole uh, your whole young adulthood was executive produced by Andre Harrell, exactly, right?
0: exactly, exactly, and and Neil Soul was just, you know, I, I hate to use it like in this past tense because I've I never liked thinking of music in this like it was over, right? But that music, that feeling, all of that was such a, a huge part of that part of my life, and you tell so many rich stories about the formation of the Soquarians, the dissolution of the Uma and his work with Q-Tip. And, you know, for such collaboration, there's also creative tensions. And so I wanted to, to give you a chance to kind of talk through some of that, because I want to tie it to something at the beginning of our conversation. But I want to hear your your thoughts on that whole moment and and JD's, role in it as sort of this, like, formative body? Sure.
1: Um, well, we wouldn't know about James Yancey, I don't think, if it weren't for the work of a few people and the the good-heartedness and generosity of these people, you know, among them Amp Fiddler, who was uh, part of the George Clinton P-Funk Collective and basically opened his basement studio to James as a teenager so he could learn... And work on the equipment and make music for the first time. There's RJ Rice, who we know from RJ's latest arrival, Shackles on My Feet from the 1980s, who also gave James much the same thing, right? And then there was Q-Tip, who Amp, you know, put on to JD's music, who plucked James out of Detroit, listened to a beat tape, plucked him out of Detroit, introduced him to everybody, De La Soul, Busta, the Far Side, Mad Skills, and made him crew and made him a part of a Tribe Called Quest, essentially. And then didn't take any money for it. And then said, hey, but you know what? There are all these other crews out here, like the Hitmen and the Trackmasters. Let's form our own alternative to that called the UMA, which was great. But the problem for that with James is that um, it was a group credit situation. And James felt he was doing, if not most, of a lot of the work, and his name wasn't on it. And I don't think Q-Tip meant anything by it because because Q-Tip did the same thing to himself as a producer, right? So credit becomes an issue for J.D., right? Making a name for himself. And is this guy trying to make a name for himself, and he keeps changing his name from Silk to John Doe to J.D. to J. Dilla to Dilla, right? Dilla Dog. Yes. <laughs> right? Hard to make a name for yourself keep changing it. That said, um, it did get tense with Q-tip. But I think the reason it got tense is that James really appreciated and loved Q-tip. And how do you tell somebody you love who's given you the world that you don't want to be that closely related to them? That's a difficult thing and very difficult for somebody like James to do who was not, he did not have a high functionality when it came to the niceties and verbal communication. And then what's really interesting is that the second phase is this other sort of crew of musicians and an adjacent crew who come to be called the Soulquarians who are working on all this R&B, futuristic R&B and hip hop stuff. They sort of want to work with James too. And then he becomes sort of subsumed, not officially, but sort of casually in Soulquarians. So like I, I point out that one of James greatest works is his work on common's album, like water for chocolate, but on every track that he performs on his credit is produced by the soul JD for the UMA. Like you lose his name in there. Yeah. Where's my name? You know, he's very influential to D'Angelo's album, but he, he doesn't make the credits or the thank yous on the liner. Yeah. And he's like, where's my name? Where's my name? <laughs> right. But he, he was always very grateful, and loved his brothers in the Silquarians. he loved his brothers in the UMA, but he, at a certain point around the year 2001, it was like, I've got to go for Delph, you know, I've got to do it on my own.
0: You know, the reason why I, I wanted to leave some space for that to come up in our conversation is at the very beginning, when we were talking about Detroit and we started to talk about or mentioned the erasure. That was going on in the city, that yep. communities and Black cultures, um, Black communities, Black neighborhoods, Black cultures were was being erased. Yep. And as I was reading the book and I started, I, I wrote down here just as some thoughts, like there's credit, there's control, but on the flip part of that, there's recognition, which is different. There's a different feeling and, and connotation. And so I'm curious from your perspective, if some of the erasure... That JD would have grown up in. Do you think? And I'm asking you to be a little bit of a armchair psychologist here. Do you think some of that might have played into that need to have your name on things, that recognition being so important because you you might have some fear of erasure. You know, when you talked about the the Q-tip um, Janet Jackson song that mimics him but isn't him, right? You know, I'm curious what you, what you think about some of that.
1: Well, I think that one of the cautionary tales that James, one of the stories that James grew up with that became a cautionary tale for him was that of his father, DeWitt, Beverly DeWitt Yancey. And this is another thing in the book. Like, there's very little on his father. His father was a man of mystery to me. And it took me a while. And I still don't feel like I've got, I still don't feel like I have a really great story of DeWitt Yancey in there but what i did get was that he was a korean war vet who came back after the war in the late 50s early 60s and you know really wanted to make a career in music and he's a songwriter and a bass player and he definitely worked with kim weston on her demos but did not successfully transition to her career at motown he had a group called the he was in a group called the sensation Ivies that toured apparently, but didn't have many hits. There was this story that they toured with the Harlem Globetrotters, and he may very well have, but Aaron McRae of the sensation obvious says, we never went with the Globetrotters, right? So all these sort of facts about his life, I can't make connections, but the biggest thing that we know about DeWitt Yancey, according to like complex.com and other places, is that he ghost wrote It's a Shame for the Spinners in
0: 1970.
1: Hmm. Now, you know, it's a Shame is credited to Stevie Wonder, Lee Garrett, and Sarita Wright. And it very much sounds like a Stevie Wonder song to me, just knowing him and his way of composition. So I really wanted to investigate this. I couldn't find a single bit of corroborating evidence for James Dwight Yancey having produced or, or written that song. Mm -hmm. And I went all the way to G.C. Cameron, who remembers Stevie Wonder, playing the song for him in his mother's basement, Lula Mae Hardaway's basement in Detroit. So what do you do with that information, right? I kind of give it to the reader. But what DeWitt told everybody is that he sold it and got a Ford Cortina for it, right? Or you know, he bought a Ford Cortina with the money for that. And that was that. And so his boys, his sons, John and James, grew up with these tales of DeWitt Working in the music business, and I know that he did do a lot of work for Johnny Mae Matthews, but I couldn't corroborate the Motown thing. And James, at some point, he did an interview in early two thousand three where he talks about this. You know that his father, why don't you have more credit? Why don't you? Why weren't you able to do more? You know, and you get the sense that James is saying that's not going to happen to me. Hmm. That's not going to happen to me. And the irony of his career, of course, is that the minute he starts to Really begin to do his own solo career, well, not the minute of, but very you know, few years after is when he gets sick, yeah, and and he he dies in February, two thousand and six, at the age of thirty two, yeah, way early,
0: way early, is it? Way early. It's one of those moments that you never really forget, mm-hmm. you know. And his legacy is is one that is so important. His contributions are so important. You know, I want to ask you this question before I, I get to off the dome and and the drop which is, I don't watch NFL anymore because fuck them and their terrible labor practices. Um, But at a time when I used to watch the NFL, there was always this conversation about the NFL coaching tree, right? That Joe Gibbs delivered you this person and Don Shula delivered you this person and so on and so forth. And I guess Bill Belichick would be one of the more famous ones in current time. Right? You know, kind of looking at Dilla and his work, you know, who do you see in the landscape? today, if anybody, that you would say is from that J.D. Dilla
1: tree of thinking about sound Mm. and production? Well, I mean, so many people in hip hop, DJ Harrison to, you know, to Lotus to, I mean, on and on and on, like too numerous to mention in hip hop. What's really interesting to me is how folks like Glasper and Jason Moran take his ideas into jazz. And how Dilla Time will show up in a song by the 1975, this sort of British alt rock band, and how Hiatus Coyote from Melbourne, Australia creates an entire album using this rhythmic motif. Those are the things to me, you know, Anderson Pop, you know? Right? He's a he's a drummer and he has facility with that particular conflicted time feel. So to me, I see him everywhere. I see him everywhere. And that's cool. That's real cool, but the yeah. and the point of the book is you're hearing him, and here's the thing. But this is how it started. I I needed people to know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that highest coyote and that latest 1975 record. Latest being, I think this was 2020 when it came out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I listened to it a lot during the pandemic. I, you could definitely hear it in that record. Like mm. they they went through so many different types of styles and fields. Yeah particularly from when they first came out to now is it's been one of my most favorite records of recent years. That yeah. Record. yeah. It's amazing. Right. It's amazing. So I want to get to off the dome in the time we have left. I want to get you out of here on some kind of time, close to the time I said I would.
1: Um, All right. The so lightning these, round.
0: Yeah, exactly. Lightning round questions. And I have four of them. All right. What is a, a current artist? And this could be any genre that you would have liked to see J Dilla work with.
1: You know, uh, the current artist, his name is D'Angelo, <laughs> and I would like to see D'Angelo finish that track that he started with JD, the one that people call Marvine. That's mm-hmm. my that's my wish. Okay,
0: well we we might get that wish. I love when I ask a question that could actually come true. Um, of all the artists, and this one is a little bit more hip hop, you know that that wrote on a on a JD beat. Who do you think did that the best?
1: That's impossible to say because. Uh, <laughs> you know listen i love his slate of mcs from fat cat to Elzai to guilty like there's no i don't do the positioning thing i don't do the yeah. best thing but i will say this there is a special relationship between t3 and dilla that is in some ways very fundamental to me mm-hmm. their approach is similar and i feel like i can't have one without the other
0: okay i've usually avoid ranking things too, but yet I ask questions that ask people to do the same thing. So I'm a hypocrite. Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) I hate ranking stuff. I'm always like, I don't have a favorite. (laughs) Now you've had this career that's spanned the music business. You lecture at Clive Davis. You're a professor there. If you could take your lectures, this class you teach on Dilla, anywhere in the world,
1: where would you want to like expound on Dilla? Shoot. Take me to London or Tokyo or someplace. Berlin, get me out of here. <laughs> there you go.
0: We need to take this class on tour, man. Yeah. <laughs> and the final question is a little bit more open-ended. It, it's just a fill in the blank. You know, I've I've kind of talked about what hip-hop means to me. We've talked about, obviously, Dilla's contribution, and we can go on and on about that. You know, so open-ended hip-hop is fill in the blank, man, for you.
1: Say that again. Wait, I'm not sure I understood the question. Got say it one more time. Sorry. It's
0: a, it's a fill in the blank. Hip hop is. Oh, hip hop is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hip hop is ever changing. Perfect. Perfect. And now we're going to get to the drop. The final segment where we recommend something to our listeners. It can be anything at all. Serious, not serious, you know, anything. So I'm, I'm going to go first, which is I'm going to recommend for my drop. Organized Confusion's first two records are available on Spotify. And Organized Confusion is one of my favorite hip hop groups, You know, particularly Extinction Agenda, is just unbelievable to me as, as a record. Feral Monch is, is routinely in my top 10 MCs. And to have that record, I think, available to wider audiences is amazing. So I would go out, and if you haven't listened to these records, Organized Confusion's first two albums are on Spotify. But pay particular attention to Extinction Agenda. Yeah. Stress. <laughs> Rest in
1: peace to Front Klein. Absolutely. And that's my drop. That's me. So am I supposed to do a drop now? Yeah, man. You got you to gotta give us a drop. Well, I would just say fantastic volume two. Fantastic volume two. A lot of the focus of Dilla has gone to Donuts, which is a fantastic record. And I tell the story of how Jeff Jank uh, had a lot to do with the formation of that final product. But if you really want to understand the genius of Dilla, JD, listen to Fantastic Bonanza. Of- Absolutely, that's a by Slum Village. Slum Village, is the name. Of
0: it's it. a yeah. classic. I remember when that was in the streets forever, man. Yep. That was a that ruled for Green for a minute.
1: <laughs> a great, great thing,
0: brother. I, I, I appreciate you being on the show Thanks and for having me. sharing your work, your your insights. You know. J.D. was a giant, and it's amazing to see his legacy continue through work like this and all the artists out there who are plugging into it. So thanks so much for being on The Deep Dive and sharing this with us. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.